Okay, today my guest is Professor Lorraine Eden. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Lorraine as a person. Professor Eden is a thought leader and esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Eden is an AIB fellow, a Fulbright scholar, and a Pew fellow. She was the editor-in-chief of JIBS, served two terms on the executive board and also as the president of the AIB. She is currently the Dean of the AIB Fellows and has consulted many MEs, governments and international organizations on transfer pricing, ME strategies and structures. She has testified as an expert witness in the courts, national governments and international organizations. She was the lead author of the AIB's three codes of ethics and, up, and their updates. She also founded and co-wrote the Ethicists blog for the AOM. Uh, Dr. Eden received the AIB John Dunning President's Award in 2012, the inaugural Woman in the Academy of International Business Woman of the Year Award in 2016. She was honored by the European International Business Academy in its annual research volume, Progress in International Business Research. In 2019, she also received the Medal of the City of Rennes, France, and won two GIPS 50th anniversary gold medals for scholarly service and scholarship. She also has over 200 scholarly articles published in all the major management and international business journals. Thank you, Lorraine, for, for joining us. Thank you, Ilgaz. I'm delighted to be here and thank you for that nice introduction. Uh, first question always is, what did you want to become when you were a child? Um, I think growing up, I uh, wanted to become a lawyer in my high school yearbook. It actually says, I, um, I was thinking about the question, in my high school yearbook, it says that I wanted to be the Canadian ambassador to the UN. <laughs> <laughs> so um, clearly an interest um, in, in law and politics as a child. And how did you choose academia? Um, actually, I think I kind of fell into it. I uh, started out in pre-law at Mount A, and the pre-law course was economics. And so I started economics my first year university and fell in love with economics and then decided that I'd really like to teach it. I did. And so went on to get a master's and then a PhD in economics and really been a university professor my whole life. About IB scholarship, uh, how did you focus uh, later on? In, well, in you know, this, that's an interesting question in terms of IB, you know, um, when I started doing IB scholarship, it depends upon what you define as IB scholarship, right? I would argue that right from the original things that I started writing as a master's and PhD student, you would consider them to be international uh, business in the sense that they were written in international economics and they were about firms. And so under the big umbrella that I think of as IB scholarship, um, clearly really everything I've written, not everything, some things I've written have been about sub-federal public finance, but most of what I've written has, would I think fall under the big tent of, of IB scholarship. If you stopped uh, doing what you're doing today, what's the second best alternative career path for you? 
Well, that question, I think, doesn't quite fit me, I guess, Ilgaz, in the sense that I'm now retired from being a full-time academic teaching, and I'm in my, uh, in some sense, my second dream career already, uh, I am. But uh, in the point in time when I had been a full-time academic, if I had done something different, I think I would have taken up one of the many offers that I had and moved into the uh, consulting sector and gone to work for one of the big four accounting firms and done transfer pricing as a transfer pricing professional instead of uh, doing it as an academic. So now that I am retired and I'm not full-time teaching, I'm actually doing much more of what my other alternative would have been. I'm doing much more on the focus on the public policy aspects of transfer pricing and international tax. I've got involved in a lot of organizations, the American Bar Association, the National Association of Business Economists, the International Tax Congress, the Tax Foundation, and I'm doing all kinds of that kind of public policy work associated. So I kind of moved out of still doing the research, um, but I moved into what I considered my second career, which was trying to make a difference through influencing how policy is made at the international level in the international tax and transfer pricing world. Perfect. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Um, I suppose we all have things like that, but let me just suggest, suggest one. <laughs> I was in grade 10, okay? And we had a really interesting history teacher at that time. And he wanted us each to do a, on a year long project on something at history. And I was at that point in time interested in the Greeks and Romans. I was studying Latin at the time. I did three years of high school Latin. And I decided that uh, what I wanted to do was build a scale model of the Greek Parthenon. Okay, we're talking 1960s. This is pre-internet. <laughs> Um, I spent three years, grade 10, 11, and 12 in high school, building a scale model of the Parthenon that's as big as a tabletop. My father helped me do that. We built much of it in the basement of our house, and uh, he had the foresight to order a plexiglass case made for it. And the, when I graduated in high school, we gave the Parthenon to my high school and it is still, I graduated in 1966. So what's that now? Uh, 55 years later now, 55 years later, that Parthenon is still there in the high school library. Uh, and I have actually started a website about it, which I haven't finished. So this is on my to-do list called um, Go Parthenon which includes pictures of all the scale models of the Parthenons built around the world. There aren't a lot, Ilgaz. There are very few scale models of the Parthenon. I suppose the biggest one is in Nashville, Tennessee, and I visited it a couple of times and taken photos. But um, St. Stephen de Brunswick is one of the few full-scale models of the Parthenon <laughs> built when I was a high school student. Oh, I should tell you, when that was done, this is kind of funny add-on story. When that was done, the head of the, of the classics department at the University of New Brunswick came down to see me and visit and tried to persuade me to go and do classics. If he, I guess they figured anybody who built a scale model of the Parthenon should, uh, you know, should really be doing classics. And you know, I wanted to be a lawyer at that point in time. 
and ended up in economics and didn't go to UNB. One other large sort of interesting thing that came out of that, my mother took, I think she, she and I went to, my mother's British, she and I went to England, I think in either grade 11 or grade 12 for three weeks. I wrote to the British Museum, said I was building a scale model of the Parthenon, asked if I could go in and draw the frieze around the Parthenon because it was not in the books that I could get on interlibrary loan. <laughs> and they wrote back from the British Museum and they allowed me to come in. So for a week, my mom and I lived in a hotel in London and every day I went to the British Museum with my special pass and my drawing board and I stayed with the frieze and drew the marbles. I have no idea where those notes are, but the frieze is still, of course, around the Parthenon that I drew. But I thought amazing that a British Museum would let a high school kid from Canada in to have that kind of access. <laughs> This is truly fascinating. So, uh, how accurate is it? Uh, I mean, oh, I think it was you... actually as it was two scales we could get. Um, I ordered interlibrary loan books basically from all over the world, and I now actually have quite a large collection of books on the Parthenon, probably more than most libraries do. And, um, you know, so when I do finally build this Go Parthenon website out, matter of fact, if you go to my website, you nail that, you know, you're down to the bottom of the page. Some of the photos are there now. You know, it's, it's a site under construction. <laughs> uh, about, uh, did, did you actually go and see the actual? Yes, but much later in life, uh, my husband Chuck Herman and I went, oh gee, it must be six or seven years ago. And that was truly memorable for me. And then we went through the museum, right? At the bottom of the Acropolis. And I took all kinds of photographs in there. Um, you know, it's been, um, it's been a passion of my life since I was in high school, frankly. And um, we had just amazing Latin teachers. You know, um, one of the things that, that I remember and that nobody else seems to remember is the Latin teacher we had in high school used to bring in movies dubbed in Latin. So we saw <laughs> Helen of Troy as a black and white movie dubbed in Latin. So... <laughs> that is something... That is something. Um, uh, regrets? Have you got any regrets? Any regrets? Um, I think the re major regrets I have are things I didn't try or didn't do because I was, in many cases, afraid to do them. Uh, we know that that's a syndrome with women now that women often erect their own stumbling blocks and don't attempt things because they think they cannot do. Um, not that I think I have regrets in that I just didn't try, right? I, in other words, the barriers imposed were self-imposed, not really imposed by others. And so, for example, I went on very few sabbatical leaves. And when I did a sabbatical leave, we usually... Uh, just stayed at home or, you know, traveled, um, say, for example, took a, a semester sabbatical leave and just simply went across to University of Texas at Austin from here. It was very productive, but it, in some sense, I think pulling up and going somewhere else completely uh, is good for people, you know, uh, on this. 
So I guess my regrets primarily to some extent are things that I didn't do that I could have done. So for example, here's another one you'll guess. This is far more common these days. Over my lifetime, I've been fortunate to work and be mentored by an amazing variety of just in truly incredible scholars. My dissertation chair, Carl Schaup, was one of the world's truly leading public finance scholars, and uh, I was his last PhD student. I was really fortunate to spend a year with Ray Vernon at the Kennedy School, and we team taught together. So, I mean, I could go on like that, but John Dunning, for example, you know, John Dunning for many years, I looked up to and he, he mentored me and he's one of the reasons why I became an AIB member. I didn't co-author with any of those individuals. I never asked. And I think if I'd asked, they would have all said, sure, Lorraine. And I, my regrets are that I, you know, I didn't ask to co-author something with Carl or with Ray uh, or with John. Um, it's just sort of who I was. I didn't think they'd be interested in, so I didn't ask. I guess the lesson out of that is, you know, women need to be, women need to be more confident in the sense of saying, oh, the word, what's the worst that could happen? Somebody could say no, right? Uh, and, and so in many ways, and I look at my own career, I think the roads not taken were roads I self-imposed. I want your work with the uh, woman in AIB. Uh, are things uh, changing in, in a way that you you would like to see them change? Uh, the effort in that goes into women in AIB. Um, I think the women in AIB, you know, set up more than twenty years ago now, and it was originally set up to encourage networking. One of the things I'd noticed is that when people got invited for something, they got invited to speak or they got invited for a job or they were considered for X, Y, or Z, it was always men. And one of the things I realized is you needed some way for women to know what other women were out there and to draw them to the attention of the committees that were doing the invites. So one of the first things we did, for example, is we created a directory. For several years, in those first years, Wade published a directory of all the women AIB members, what rank they were in, where they were located, what their fields were and interests were in. And we sent that, Ilgaz, to A, every woman who was a member of Wade, every department head, and asked them to give it to their deans. And the idea was to simply raise the consciousness to say, okay, if you're inviting speakers this year, and you're thinking about speakers in IB, don't just think of the men who normally come to mind. Here's a list of, you know, the women that are doing really interesting work on stuff that you might think about in inviting. Or if you had an opening and you were in a full professorship and you were contacting people, you didn't just only contact the men. Now, and Wave doesn't do that anymore. Maybe it isn't needed. I actually think it probably still is. Um, but I think WAVE evolved from just that kind of networking and visibility focus to both a focus on gender research, right? So I always think there's networking, there's always a group in WAVE who are focused on the networking, the women's aspects, the professional aspects, and another group that are focused on uh, gender research specifically and, and those issues. And I think there's also been another tension in wave between really a focus on women, in other words, on gender, 
uh, male versus female versus the much broader diversity and inclusion issues, the LBGDQ issues. And um, um, my own view has been that there's enough of enough issues to do with just women. I mean, let's talk about what's just happened in Afghanistan with the US withdrawal and what's going to happen to women in Afghanistan, which is you know horrific. Um, and, and I think there's enough work to be done there that I'd actually like to see a separate SIG that was diversity inclusion that you know did the big tent. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me sort of about WAVE over the last 21 years, I can tell you where we started as a, I think, I don't know, a very small group of women who were interested in finding out where the others were and what they did, right? <laughs> and trying to bring that visibility to business schools in terms of opening the door for at least consideration of women for visiting visiting positions, speaking engagements, you know, job opportunities, to really a much broader now of, of doing a variety of panels and workshops and uh, helping young doctoral, female doctoral students um, with networking doing a lot of gender research, and then um, I think a much broader focus on diversity and inclusion. I guess what I'm saying is I think WAVE is a much bigger tent these days, just like I think IB is, than it was when we first started. And that's probably a good thing. Things have sure. to change over time, right? Sure. Uh, Lorraine, for the sake of time, let, let's switch gears to, to talk about research. How do you explain your research to people uh, you don't know, uh, who don't read your work regularly, say you're stranded in a pub. Uh, what do you do and why is your work important? Okay, I, I'm the simple example, I usually, I say I'm, most of my research has been in something called transfer pricing. And I bet you don't know what that is. Nowadays, I think people actually do know more, but typically they didn't. And the way I explain it is, let's think of uh, Ford in Dearborn, Michigan, and it's assembling a car and it wants an engine. The engine is made in Hermosillo, Mexico. So you have to take that engine made in Mexico and you have to ship it up to Dearborn where it's actually put in the car. How do you price it? How do you price that engine? It's a transfer between two, um, a subsidiary in Mexico and the parent in Dearborn, Michigan. They're related parties. Uh, they can maximize profits of the group as a whole. And what if I told you that the tax rate in Michigan, excuse me, the tax rate in Mexico was half the tax rate in the United States? Wouldn't you try to set that price so that you would move the profits down to Mexico where the tax rate was less? Or suppose I told you when you brought it across the border, you were going to get hit with a 20% tariff. You think there's any possibility you might under invoice it to avoid paying the tariff? As a matter of fact, that's another thing I often ask people. When you cross the border, you actually tell the truth to the customs agent in terms of the value of the stuff you brought across, right? <laughs> um, and, and so what people will kind of smile and say, but the, the answer is when, when related parties get together, it's impossible for them to maximize the profits of the group in a way that advantages one member and disadvantages another, but makes the group as a whole better by arbitraging things like differences in corporate tax rates or tariffs or foreign exchange controls, that sort of, uh, that sort of issue. Perfect. Uh, about 
omitted variables or omitted contexts, uh, neglected areas in international business research for the next uh, five to 10 years of the field? What do you think are the things that we should talk more about? Well, I, I think um, the things that don't get discussed in IB are typically those where there are no data. You can't shine the light in the dark corners if you don't have the data, right? So one of the real problems has been inability to have data on subjects. So frankly, that's been a, the probably the single largest hurdle in empirical work on transfer pricing is the lack of available data. Now, uh, let me give you an example of what that happened. Think about the work on corruption. Real work on corruption did not start until Transparency International first started publishing the TI indexes where they basically assigned a number. When the uh, bribery index first came out, we were able to separate corruption into two characteristics, pervasiveness and arbitrariness. And that was the basis of um, my first paper in AMR and um, other work that I went on to do on, uh, on corruption. So in other words, as the data get better, researchers that have had a long time interest in questions don't have to do just conceptual theoretical work, they can actually do empirical work. So in transfer pricing, the first empirical data sets really did not start appearing until fairly, fairly recent. Some, some of my own work was done simply because I went into the Bureau of Labor Statistics and they gave me multiple months of BLS data on US exports and imports. And um, you know, I, I have some papers coming out of that. The new country by country reporting regulations that have just started showing up are now releasing data on multinationals. Part of the problem is that the data really doesn't get at what you want. So here's another, you know, crunk, what's the word I want? Conundrum, another conundrum. Suppose you go from no data to poor data. Are you better off? <laughs> are you better off doing the work knowing that the data are wrong? Let me give you an example of what I mean. The country by country reporting data is data on sales of multinationals, on the labor force, and maybe on property, plant, and equipment, not for banks, of course, and, and service companies. But there's a little data, but there's no data on intangibles in the data set. You and I both know that the major source of competitive advantage of MNEs comes from their intangible assets and how those intangible assets are managed and used. So suppose I tell you that the available data for transfer pricing and guessing at where firms manipulate uh, taxes or not is now data from country by country reports. I think you would say, well, hey, you can do those statistics, but they're clearly going to be wrong because you haven't got a handle on the intangibles. Maybe the intangibles are correlated with sales. Maybe they're not. You know, so, so the conundrum of saying, what aren't we doing in research, to me, is both an issue of, A, we have no data, and so we can't shine the light in the dark corners. Or what happens first is we start getting some data, but it's not necessarily very good. And so the results are very, aren't really what we want. So let me explain that. No, so I think transfer pricing and international tax is a big area coming up where the data are finally coming and getting better. The other, of course, is the digital economy, where we are finally starting to, I think, uh, through big data, get a handle on platforms 
I'm really interested in the digital economy and thinking about digital business models. But it's, again, one thing to conceptualize them. It's another thing to actually say, OK, we have data that we can now think about, for example, how internalization theory applies or doesn't apply in digital business models. Interesting. Um, well, let's talk about the evolution then, the evolution of the IB field. I mean, you, you've seen what it was in the past and mm -hmm. it is now evolving. Mm -hmm. uh, IB scholarship is evolving. Uh, along the way, um, what are we losing? What are we gaining? And where are we headed to? Um, well, I have to talk about from when, you know, when you when we go back to the very first question you asked me about my IB research. Remember, I have a PhD in economics, um, BAMA PhD in economics, gotten in economics department, <laughs> taught in economics departments for, for much of the early part of my life. Um, the early IB scholars, most of them came out of economics departments. Some came out of history, a couple came out of poli-sci. Remember, business schools aren't that old, Ilgaz. Management departments aren't that old. And IB departments, you know, sort of flourished for a while and then kind of died away. And now there aren't that many. So what happened is I think people of my generation in AIB were primarily trained in economics departments, taught in econ departments, and then maybe moved over to business schools. Um, lots of us did that. Um, Ray Vernon, um, um, uh, Alan Rugman, John Dunning, right? We all started out sort of as economists who migrated over. And I migrated much later than many of the others because I really didn't start teaching in a business school until I got married uh, um, to my, my current husband. And um, we moved to Texas A&M. And rather than joining the economics department, I joined the uh, management department in the Mays Business School. And that was the first time I actually started thinking of myself as an IB scholar was when I was physically in a management department and assigned for the first time in my life to teach international business. You know, I taught from Griffin and Puste. Um, both Ricky Griffin and Mike Puste were in my department and that was a textbook that I used uh, for many years. So I think one of the things that's happened in IB is that we started out somewhere else and then migrated into business schools, whether into directly into IB departments, uh, South Carolina, for example, or GW or FIU or Thunderbird. Um, or we migrated into places like management and marketing. Uh, once, now let me just talk then about the new PhDs. And, and I've thought, thought a fair bit about this. One of the things I've noticed about PhDs who now are in AIB, who started not where I did, but started in a plain mainstream business department, they're really reluctant to read outside of the field. So where I might have been reading, I read a lot, still read a lot in, in economics. And, uh, you know, I, I read broad, I think I read very broadly. My impression is a lot of PhD students, if it didn't show up in an academy of management journal or in an AIB journal, don't ever look, don't waste your time looking at it or never look at a book. There's, you know, the perception is there can't be anything in a book that could provide useful uh, information to, to young researchers. And frankly, I think that's sad. 
um, particularly sad in that these days it's so much easier to get access to books and to journals outside of your own field than it ever was. In, in my day, I actually physically had to go to a library and if a library didn't have the book I want, I had to call for it and enter a library loan, right? And wait three weeks till I got it. Now I can log into my library website and I can enter, let's say corruption. I can enter corruption and what comes up are articles written across maybe 20 different disciplines that are related to corruption. And I have to decide which ones to read, which ones are relevant. But my, my concern is that many doctoral students and young faculty members say, okay, all I'm gonna read are this narrow set of journals in this narrow field, because I don't have the time to do anything else. And I think, you know, there's nothing that says IB is first in these issues, or even fifth in dealing with an issues across the disciplines. And often by paying attention to what, in other words, reading broadly across the disciplines, you see the synergies and you see the opportunities of how something may be moving faster, say in finance, than it is in IB, or moving faster in economics. Now, admittedly, the methods, maybe methods you're not familiar with, and that's obviously an issue because the language is in important and the languages are different when you go across reading in different areas. But you can at least get the sense of what's going on in those fields and the topic that you're interested in. And then, you know, even talk to somebody who's actually writing in that area to, to help you think about it. So I find that is a, one, a real problem, this perception that I don't have enough time to read anything, so I'm only going to read the AOM and AIB journals and not read anything else. I think that's sad. Lorraine, when you said IB is not the first or the fifth in these lists. What um, I mean on a topic. Okay. Um, about the field, are we becoming too focused or are we, uh, are we losing the rich context uh, of IB, how it was started, how it uh, originally was uh, developed, uh, or are we now uh, maturing too fast and this maturity is bringing some sort of uh, some stagnant um, position? Um, I think editors of the journals make a big difference here. Um, when, when I became editor-in-chief in Jibs in 2007, uh, I realized one of the, a couple of things I wanted to do, we'll guess. And one, there were very little qualitative work published in Jibs. And so I wanted a special issue on qualitative methods. And the lead article in that won the Jibs Decade Award not long ago. So, you know, it sort of vindicated the importance of introducing qualitative methods into Jibs. Two, I wrote my original lead article made the argument that international business was a row in the matrix where you put the topics down the rows and you put the disciplines across the columns and that IB was really the international row across the business disciplines, marketing, management, accounting. And I actually argued you could go past that and think about it as including economics, psychology, sociology, another political science. In other words, I was arguing that people who did IB 
weren't necessarily discipline specific as marketing or management, but were really more interested in the adjective, the international. And I really tried during my term as Jib's editor to broaden the journal and to bring in special issues that were, were broader. They were on institutions, they were on geography. They, they, the idea was to start moving IB from focusing on what I, what I thought of as dancing on the head of a pin, small articles that were tweaking things we already knew. Um, let me give you an example of specifically what I meant. I, it all, I, I've always been bothered by the articles with the, the article was designed to test a moderator, a single moderator. So basically all the hypotheses were just about a moderator effect. Right now, it doesn't mean I haven't done some myself. I think I have, but the contribution of looking at one moderator on stuff we already know could be dancing on the head of a pin. And there were, I think, a variety of those articles. Um, I really wanted IB scholars to think broader and bigger picture. Now, I think that's how John uh, Cantwell did the same. Elaine Verbecki has very seriously argued that uh, Jibs should be seen as a lead journal in the ecology of um, business, international business journals and really tried to broaden. So I think the journal editors themselves, I'm thinking of Ari Lewin. Ari Lewin, when, when was the editor you know, before me, editor-in-chief before me, came in and instead of having you know one editor controlling everything set up 30 editors and opened it up to basically almost anything so i mean i think you can go too broad too but for me the journal editors are a very important gatekeeper in terms of thinking what is the field of ib and when they define the field as broad and they encourage researchers to work in a, in that breadth i think that's very healthy uh, very healthy for the field. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, about advice, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the PhD program? The best advice? Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe I should back up and say just a little bit about, about that. I was married and uh, my husband was doing, my first husband was doing an MBA in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I took a job as uh, with an incomplete master's degree at the age of 21, teaching in an economics department. And I did that for a couple of years. And they told me, Lorraine, you can't stay unless you get a PhD. I was teaching public finance, international trade, and of course, on the Canadian economy. I looked up, Dalhousie University was the only one offering a PhD in economics. I looked up Dalhousie, saw that there was a person teaching public finance at the doctoral level, asked if I could sit in on the course, okay? I sat in on the course and discovered that I, I'm, you know, was the only student, I discovered that I loved it and said, can I join the PhD program? I took a year's, I guess I took a year's leave of absence from teaching and, um, you know, drove a car down the road and took my PhD. I took all my courses in one year. And that year, Carl Schaup happened to be the previous year, Carl Schaup had retired from teaching at Columbia. And Carl 
came as a senior Killam Fellow for one year to do to his former student, John Hitt. John was my public finance teacher. Um, John recommended Carl supervise my dissertation. So basically you need to know my dis, I was a PhD student for two years. I did one year of coursework when Carl was there and I was doing courses writing my, and started writing my dissertation. And then the second year I wrote my dissertation while I was you know, teaching part-time and you know, did my, my comprehensive <laughs> exams. So when I did this, you have to realize that you know, I was married, my husband by then had a job in Halifax and the argument was, the perception was I was going straight back to teaching at Mount St. Vincent University. That's what I thought, that's what they thought. Nobody encouraged me to go on the market the, I think they just all thought I, I was the only PhD student in the class. I wrote my dissertation. Um, you know, I did everything by myself going through. Uh, I graduated summa cum laude with a sanction in my PhD, but, but you'll guess I did not get a normal PhD. In a class, uh, I would have four faculty members where I was the only PhD student. It was run as a colloquium. <laughs> Or I had a one-on-one -on -one, like in Cambridge where you did a course with one professor and you met once a week and you did the reading and you talked about the reading. I had as, I guess, as close to a British PhD as you probably could get uh, in that sense. Not a normal American style PhD. We have a class and you go sit in the room and you write a term paper at the end. In my PhD class in public finance, for example, because I did, I did it twice, um, every fourth week, <laughs> I guess every fourth week, every fifth week, I had to present a paper of original research. You know, it was just, it was, this, it was an, uh, in many ways, you know, so I didn't go to Harvard or a well-known school, but I spent, I spent my year surrounded by amazing researchers with world reputations. It was in many ways, just a fantastic education that is, is, is a very rare education. But what did they not tell me? They didn't put me on the market. They never said, Lorraine, you really need to go on the market and, and get out. I think they thought I was going, and I did. I went straight back to several years more of teaching. It was a couple of years later. I didn't move till 1980. I got my PhD in 76 and went back and became department head and stayed there for a few more years before I got up the gumption to say, I need to get out of a three-person teaching school, which is what I was, five, 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 five course teaching load in a three-person department where I was department head and get to a place, you know, where I could do more research. Hmm. Um, you know, so I'm, I think I'm not your normal PhD student. And so the advice I got or didn't get was not the typical advice. What's the advice that you would give the uh, young scholars and PhD students? What to do? What not to do part is, I understand. What, what to do part uh, going forward? Well, um, um, several things. Um, one, build a um, network of people that you know, that you trust, that you rely on that can help get you through the PhD program. Everybody gets through the coursework, you know, basically almost everybody gets through the coursework where they fail is getting through the dissertation. And I think many people that hurdle of the dissertation for a young PhD student is very tough. 
it's how it's really helpful to go through with a group of people at the same time as you are. And I think the expectations are so much higher now. They want you to have all these publications even before you've got your dissertation done. So I think finding good mentors to who, whose advice you trust, it can be really helpful. Um, get involved, you know, in AIB early. Get involved in, if you're a woman, get involved in WAVE. They can be really helpful for you in terms of thinking about how to navigate those first years. Uh, I think there's a variety of ethical pitfalls that can befall young students and young faculty and understanding how to avoid those ethical pitfalls, which is the reason why, you know, Kathy Lundin and Paul Valor and I wrote The Ethics, The Ethical Professor was because we saw so many young people make such avoidable mistakes on ethics issues. The other thing is, I guess I would say do what I didn't do, which is don't be afraid to ask. Um, don't self-limit by saying I can't do those things and, and do recognize the worst that can happen is that somebody says no. Be prepared to fail and learn from that failure, right? You know, we're all gonna fail multiple, multiple times over our career. I remember being at a doctoral consortium where Bob Hoskison was one of the presenters, one of the faculty presenters. And he said something that I, I thought was really useful. He called it seven times down, eight times up. And it's the story of an article that he wrote and sent to eight journals. Each time he sent it, it got rejected. You know, one, one time up, one time down, two times up, two times down. The eighth time it got published and he said he thinks it's one of his best articles. So remember seven times down, eight times up. Perfect. Uh, what is one uh, last question is, uh, what's the question I should have asked you about heaven? Well, you did ask it actually. I, I thought you might ask me about my interests in gender and things I've done on WAVE and whatnot, but you did, it wasn't on the list, but you did ask it, I'll guess. <laughs> Anything we've, we've left out that you want? Anything to say? we left out. Um, I, I, I will say one other thing, because I'm, I'm, this has come up in, in other places that I've talked about. When, in looking back at my own research, I realized there's a thread running through my work that I hadn't realized. I've been interested in what I call shocks and responses. That, you know, when, when, when something disturbs a, uh, an equilibrium system, and then how you move to a new equilibrium after that. It's a big issue in economics, comparative statics and dynamics is about shocks and responses. Um, but I, I had a long run interest in that and started to realize that one of the reasons why I had it was because of a major crisis in my own family when I was eight. Um, we were living in Moncton, New Brunswick at the time. My father was a refrigeration engineer. My mother was at home and in a very traditional 50s housewife. She um, was at home with three children. She did not have the right to sign checks. She couldn't drive a car. Dad gave her an allowance every week. She bought the groceries. You know, that, that I mean, it's a typical 50s family. And uh, dad was out walking the street one day and a guy pulled up in a car who he knew and said, we're going to Shediac to buy lobsters. Would you like to come? And dad said, sure. And he got in the backseat of the car. 
it was a brand new car with power steerings and power brakes. And the guy driving had just picked it up and got it. And he didn't know how to use power steering or power brakes and had a huge accident that my father got glass in his eyes and was blinded. So I'm eight years old. I'm the eldest of three kids. My mother doesn't drive. She can't even sign checks. And my father's in the hospital for a year because um, he had a complete nervous breakdown. And, and what I learned from that was the resilience of, of the way people respond after a shock. And I, I took several lessons from that. One lesson I took away was as a female, I was never going to be put in that situation my mother was put in. I would balance a check. I would have an account. I would know how to drive a car. I would get myself a job that enabled me to support me and my family should anything ever happen to my husband, right? Or that put us in that kind of situation. Um, and, and I really think I have done that. I think also my interest in gender comes from there in terms of looking at my mother and how my mother, she's the one who went out to work. She became an insurance secretary and she made basically peanuts the rest of our lives. So we were sort of always on border po poverty line as children. Um, but she changed roles. When I grew up, I was the only woman, I was the only child, my only fan, we were the only family in my town where the father was at home providing, you know, dinner and whatnot. And my mother was out to work. So I learned that role reversal is doable. Women can do men's jobs. Men can do women's jobs. There's nothing unique that says um, there's something specific that the woman has to be at home and do the housework and whatnot. And the man is the one who has to go out and earn the, earn the salary. And I also realized coming out of that, that by pigeonholing women that way, we lose one half of the world's brain power. We do. If you could sign women to just being at home and, you know, cooking and cleaning and, and those kinds of activities, what happens is they don't go on to become scientists and professors and scholars, and you're losing one half that world's brain power. Um, the fact that Afghanistan is retreating back to the Middle Ages is just a really sad example of that much of the world does not take full advantage of the brain power of women. And I, I think that tragedy that happened in my own family when I was eight has really colored all the research I've done in my interest in, in equity and equality uh, uh, since then. Probably interesting. Uh, I learned a lot. Uh, this was very interesting. Thank you so much, Lorraine. Uh, I, uh, I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to talk, I guess. And I hope somebody is going to interview you because you should be done here too. <laughs> uh, I'll try to avoid it. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. Thanks.